morning. Good morning. Let's all get a seat. Uh, we're going to begin the first class. Um, you can open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Uh, we got a busy day ahead of ourselves today. Um, I'm going to open up with a couple of prayer requests. I want you all to keep in mind uh, some things that are going on here uh, in, and remembering some issues uh, that that we got to keep constantly before us. So let me give you a couple of them. Well, first of all, we have a praise. Leonard's still here and functional. And Barbara's back from being, uh, I don't know what you, what you had. What? Oh, just a virus? Okay, virus. Um, pray for my grandkids. They're really sick and they're cycling. They can't, they can't get it out of the house. And one of them's really bad that he's sleeping all day and all night kind of thing. So pray that Stephanie and Eric will find some answers for that. Uh, so without having to sit in the emergency room again. So pray for them. Uh, pray for Rick as he's moved to Bartisville and mostly for uh, Billy so she can get some rest. But because she's staying up there and her temporary home is a nursing home next to him. So just pray for them as we kind of begin this new year. And also always keep Alan and Anita in your prayers. They've moved and their search for a church. So, all right, let's pray and begin class. Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, as we open up the Word this morning, we want to hear from you. We want to be people of your Word. We want to know you better, and to know you uh, is important. And Father, the thing I heard that was kind of cute this week, uh, and I think we should keep in the forefront of our minds, is maybe we should, in church, open up the book and talk about Jesus. And I think that's a good place to do that here in, in your house, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're, our, this is the eighth class on the will of man. Um, Probably a bad title for it because we're also talking about uh, the sovereignty of God, the will of God. We're talking about the the rule of Satan uh, and things like that. So it, the title is loose, but the direction is we're trying to understand how our choices and our chooser fits into the sovereignty of God. And I and sometimes uh, we've seen different. Uh, doctrinal slants where it's all about God's sovereignty and man is not free to choose and man can't choose. And I think that is a biblical uh, error. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, we were talking, me and a couple of pastors the other day, about what is a, what constitutes a heresy. And I don't think if anybody says that we don't have a freedom to choose as a heresy, I don't know, maybe. But it's not as far as I'm concerned. It's kind of weird because what a heresy is, is is taking uh, Scripture out of its context, misapplying things. Uh, not, not, There's a whole realm that it's in. Um, we don't claim to be doctrinally perfect here. We want to be as biblically clear as we can, but that's tough. you know. And, and when we come across, and it's hard, that we disagree with somebody and it sounds judgmental, Let's be biblical. That's all I say. What do you find in the Bible? How do you determine what that is? And, and that's what we're trying to do. We're walking through different verses and different arenas and different kind of questions we've asked. So I think last week I left off with this question, who rules the universe? You know, And, and that's kind of an interesting thing because if you read the book of Daniel and the prophecies there, Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar about a couple of kingdoms that will rule this earth. And then they get taken over by Christ's kingdom. The, the rock that smashes the feet of clay. Uh, but I want to turn to Psalm chapter 2. And let's look at Psalm chapter 2. Because the first thing, the thing we left off with was that the rule of God is absolute. But he allows it to be challenged. Now, as I was going through my notes uh, this week and rewriting some things and looking at some things, I want us to know there's going to be a lot of what seems to be repetition. And the answer is yes, there's repetition because we've got to get this understood in different ways we're looking at it. So if we're looking at it from one street, I guess if we're in an intersection, we're looking, we get one picture. So I may say the same thing when we go down another street because we're going to hit that intersection. Kind of get the, what I'm trying to say? Um, and not only that, the last I checked, repetition is really good. So uh, it doesn't hurt. Uh, and... As I notice in Scripture, God repeats himself over and over again, but he doesn't use the same words. So when you repeat yourself, too, and not using the same words, it's a teaching mechanism. Kind of get what I'm saying? So we're in Psalm chapter 2. 
And in verse 1, we're just going to pick up in verse 1 for context, uh, but I want to talk about God's rule over this universe through Psalm chapter 2. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? In other words, why are men coming up with their own plans, uh, which is futile, right? Because they're trying to buck against God. So verse 2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear down their fetters, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So basically, we see in verses 2 and 3, the nations have a choice to make, a volitional direction, but yet God does limit that volition. In other words, God says man can have a a choice. And man can make choices, but that choices have limitations, barriers. Uh, if, you're, if you've anything, done anything physical, and you say, I'm going to do this much, I'm going to go run a marathon tomorrow. You know, you can't, that's your choice to run a marathon, but most of you are not marathon ready. Uh, most of you can't even walk to the nearest grocery store, right? That's where we're at. I'm, we're good. We understand that. But in order to run a marathon, which is your choice, you've got to build up that and allow for that limitation. Um, but not only does God allow for volition and limit it, that choice, again, I said, I think a few weeks ago, I said, you can choose to be a millionaire, right? It's a choice, uh, but you got to start with what? Penny saved is a penny earned kind of thing, right? Verses 3 and 4, I mean 4 and 5, 5 and 6, 4, 5 and 6 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So the next thing we see is God says, you can have a choice. I will limit your choice and limit the success of that choice. So, for instance, if somebody comes up as a ruler and God establishes rulers and allows certain rulers to come to power. We've seen that. If you want to go back again to the book of Daniel, you can see that. Um, when he allows them to challenge his, his, his sovereignty, this is the best way because God is ruler of all, and they're going to say, I'm going to rule uh, in a different manner than God. He will limit their, their volition, how, how much of a choice they have, but he also limit the success of that. How well will they do? Uh, when was the last time we've seen a world ruler dominate the whole world? It hasn't happened in many, many years, and it didn't really happen. In, if you look at all of human history, there were world rulers, but they never had the whole world to rule. There were still, it, it, there were still arenas and, and places they did not rule. Verses 8 and 9 says this, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations his inheritance, and the very ends of the earth is thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt scatter them like earthenware. So why break them with a rod of iron? Because, here's what's happened. These nations have challenged God's uh, choices, God's sovereignty. God's allowed that to be challenged. And and he chose to allow that challenge for what? A time period. So that means there's limitations to that volition and the success to it. And then God does not give these volitional choices any success. At some point, God's going to come in. Lord Jesus is going to come and rule and reign, and the nations will be done away with at that point. So here's what we have. Is there choice? And I say through enough biblical verses we can find, humans have a choice that sometimes runs anti-God's sovereignty. Okay, And then there's also what we would say those that are in the word that want to do God's will. So there's two things going on. And remember, if God says, this is my will, for instance, um, I think we brought this up, I want to say Wednesday night, but my week seems to be, does God desire all men to be saved? Okay, absolutely. Are all men saved? Now, if you're a universalist, you'll say what? All men are saved, right? Because God loves everyone. But that's not true. Biblically, we know God, only those that come to the Lord, uh, come to the cross. How's that? That's a good place to meet. Come to the cross and believe in what Christ has done, are saved. But God desires all men to be saved. So that's God's will, what we would call his absolute will. And if you're not saved, you're breaking God's will. And God's allowed that. And for somebody to come up and say, well, biblically I believe God only chooses the ones to be saved and the rest are going to be damned for hell. That's God's sovereign choice overall. I don't buy that. 
I can't find that biblically. Because you're basically saying it's... What? what are, I mean, that ramifications of that statement go wide, right? First of all, do any of you have to evangelize if God's already saving people he wants to save? We don't have to give the gospel to anybody. And the Bible over and over again tells us to share what we have with others, to comfort others with the comfort we receive. And the number one comfort is saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, when those people doubt their salvation, then they point to themselves because they, they, they're looking at what they've done. And we look to who what Christ has done. I mean, we, we can come up with a ton of issues that come, come about by somebody saying God, God sovereignly chooses those to be saved and those who are not. You know, and then you're going to look at things to say, okay, if God saved me, how do I know that? And you're going to look outside of what God is to what you're doing. And that's just a horrible understanding of salvation, isn't it? Or am I missing something? Uh, it's, salvation is all of what Christ has done for us that we believe in. Uh, so why does the, a sovereign, supreme, holy God, I put all this together because I want us to understand uh, who God is, allow his perfect will to be challenged? Because most of us have a thug mentality. We really do. We've grown up with it. We've heard it where somebody rules and they got to have an absolute rule. And if it's not their way, it's what? The highway kind of thing. Uh, and you would think God is above all, before all, is all kind of thing. And um, he allows his will to be challenged. And most of us can't, you know, we want to give an order for in business or something. We get somebody in order to do something and they say, I won't do that. Or a child, you know, you say, go do something to a child. And a child stamps his feet and says, I won't do that. You know, and you said, and what it is, is a challenge to the parental authority, right? How's that handled? Well, God, because, because he desires, and here, we got to understand what God desires. He also, he also has a will that says, I desire you as a volitional, as a creature that can choose, to choose right. I think I said a long time ago, a lot of us have broken choosers. Right? We make wrong choices. Uh, so the number one thing God says is, my creature creation, I want you to respond to me by good choice. And I think that's important for us to see, because as we make more and more godly choices, we go closer and closer to God. Secondly, he allows a challenge uh, a challenge, I guess is the best way to say that, a, because he desires a historical demonstration that no good exists from his, apart from his will. Think about that. Here's God's will for all of mankind, and he allows you or me to make a choice, and we make a mistake. We err. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, because what? To err is human, right? Okay? But, can we not then look back and say, there exists a perfect good in God, and if I line up with His will, His will is always going to be good. A godly good, not a man good kind of thing. So God wants to demonstrate in history that His will is good. Can we go through the Bible and see man's choices that were bad and say God had a better choice for them, they didn't make it, and it was turned out bad? Well, we can start with Adam and Eve, right? Their choice... God's sovereign will was for them was to be fruitful and multiply, right? And not eat from one tree. That's God wrote it uh, into their minds very clearly in Genesis. It's, you know, it's kind of it's harder when you have a book of rules to follow versus two. Okay, and what happened is that we've seen from history they didn't follow that; they took their choices. So man made choice. Not, for, not to follow God's will, what happened? So we have Adam. How about Cain? Remember the incident with Cain in Genesis chapter 4? If you want to write that down, we're not going to go to it. But Genesis chapter 4, God says sin is what? Crouching at the door. And Cain, all Cain had to do was do what God said to do. Bring the right offering. Instead, Cain offered his brother and... Uh, you cannot substitute what you think is right for what God said is right and be right. So Cain, uh, what Cain did was not godly good. Okay. Now, think about this. If Adam or Cain, or any following example that we can come across, um, did not do God's will, their thinking was God's will is not an absolute will, it's just 
God making a, a divine suggestion. And I don't know about you, but you should have a difficulty when you look at the Word of God and say, God's just making a suggestion. It's, it, it, could go, it, it could go anywhere with that. And I'm okay because God loves me kind of idea. God states, I will show you what occurs when my will is not absolute in your life. So God says, if you do these things, this will happen. And if you read Deuteronomy, uh, the end of Deuteronomy specifically, and you, say, and you see, you know, everybody wants... In the church age, loves the blessings Israel gets. But the cursings that are there are, this is what will happen if you don't do what I say. So um, we can see that even in the New Testament. The wages of sin is not possible death. You know, maybe you'll die. If you sin, death is, is the resultant. Um, let's go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And Um, let's pick up in verse 30. John 12:30. Jesus answered and said, "This voice has come has not come for my sake, but for yours." Oh, but let's back up so we can get context. Sorry. Go to 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came for the, to this hour. So Jesus is a man, and he knows what's coming is what. The cross, you know, it's one of those interesting psychological dramas that I find in Scripture. Jesus was fully man, but as fully God, knew what the cross carried with it. He knew how he would die, how he would suffer, and that he would carry the sins of all of us on him at the cross. I don't know about you, but that's just totally overwhelming for me to think about how, how that could even begin to occur. So he's knowing what's coming, and he says very simply, as a man, Father, save me from this hour. Even though it was his purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Verse 28, Therefore, there came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, though, and this is where I want to go, the, this voice was not for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. So what's happening is the cross is where these things meet. And what's happening is Jesus is looking at the rule of the world that has been given to Satan. This cosmos is Satan's sphere that God allows him to rule. And at the cross, his rule is being will, will be destroyed, basically. Um, it's interesting because somebody once asked me, if Satan was destroyed and defeated at the cross, why is Satan still allowed to rule today? Um, the only way I can get you to understand that is if, we, if somebody is uh, given the death sentence for murder today, they're put in jail for how long? For whatever amount of time, but they're allowed the freedom of the confines of the stockade they're in until the sentence is carried out. Well, we know the sentence for Satan. Well, I've read the book. Uh, Read Revelation 12 on. Uh, you could see what happens with Satan. But God has allowed him this t- time period, uh, but he's already under the death sentence. Okay? Um, and, and when we talk about Satan's rule, it's over, this, over the organization that we call the cosmos. Uh, he's the, according to this, it says he's the ruler or ruling one of this world. Now, if you don't believe that, Spend time looking at the news, uh, read the paper, uh, the things that are going on constantly do not surprise me at least. I hope it doesn't surprise you because sin and Satan rules this world. And both this world and Satan are, are, are going against the will of God. Uh, which Now here, the reason I brought this up is because Satan, even though we're believers today, most of us hopefully, right, we're all believers, uh, what we have, though, is God and Satan both want to appeal to the will, 
And the will that we have, the will of man, and we should put this down somewhere and understand this, the will is a responder to something. Uh, and I think that's the most... When I went up there and put that message on the uh, marquee, I guess that thing's called, the billboard out front, if you're not in the Word of God, you can't do the will of God. Because the only place we find out what the will of God is, is in the Word of God. Otherwise, we're going to be bombarded with Satan. I gotta say it as nice as it was satanic thinking that Satan's trying to, to to motivate our thinking, and we're anesthetized sometimes to it because we get it through TV, through programs, through advertisement. Because if you don't know this, this world is satanic. Uh, it, sometimes it's, it sounds, it will sound very socially good, but you got to be careful. You got to read between the lines. Uh, I was watching something the other day, and somebody said this is a real good biblical show. And about 15 minutes into the show, that I, and I'm not going to tell anybody what it is, but you, you may have already seen it, it mentions five angels. Now, it's, they say it's biblically solid. It mentions five angels. Can anybody name five angels that are named in the Bible? And the answer is you will not find five angels in the Bible. Okay, named. So you got a problem. So where are they getting these names from? Well, some of them come from Catholicism. A couple come from... Uh, the Latter-day Saints, because everybody wants to name something. Uh, if you don't remember, a few, uh, what two weeks ago was Three Kings Day. If you're Hispanic, you'd know that. And they have these three guys that are named. Where did they get the names from? They didn't get them from the Bible. Okay, but it's really nice to name things and say, that sounds really good. Where'd you get it from? You know? And believe it or not, you're being anesthetized to things that are not biblical. And so oh, that sounds really good. It's sweet. And they just love the Lord. I say, I don't care. If they're not upholding the word of God, we got an issue. And what we see here is Satan wants us to respond to the world around us. You know who's really good at this? Anybody ever heard of Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan was fantastic about responding to the world around him because he loved the cosmos. Not the creator of the cosmos, just the cosmos. And he worshipped it. And if you ever saw some of Carl Sagan's science stuff, it was phenomenal. It was off the, he was, he's brilliant, but he's not a believer. And he's anti-God. And when you look at what he's done, he's trying to anesthetize you to satanic thinking. So if your God is the cosmos, God bless Carl Sagan today if he's floating around the cosmos somewhere. And genuflecting to Jupiter or whatever he might be doing. He's not. He's not a believer. Do you understand? It's, it's terrible because what he's done is allowed satanic thinking in because it removed God. So, for instance, if Satan's on the throne by worshiping the things that Satan wants you to worship, the things of this world, or you're on the throne, you, you're basically untouched by the word of God because that should be your guiding light and lamp. Satan is the key to isolating people from the word of God and changing the words of God. Listen, I'm going to say this. This is my bully pulpit for a minute. Please bear with me. I know that you, know, you don't find this too humorous because I'm really angry sometimes. The question is, has God really said? This is a good question because that's the first thing he asked Eve, right? Remember that in Genesis 3? Has God really said? And if you go to some churches today and you listen, you go, did God say that? So discernment requires us to be in the Word of God. So we know what the Word of God is. So when we hear people turning or twisting or saying things that are, that are socially acceptable maybe or saying things that are just application-oriented, and you say, wait a second, how did he get that? How did he get that from that Scripture? Or is he teaching what the text says and letting this text convince you and, and change you? And I think we should go to the Word of God and change, be changed. Uh, the, go to... Go to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, and I'm going to say this again, this is kind of, when we're in Ephesians 2, and we'll go to, from here to chapter 6, I want us to see something, and this may come by way of repetition a little bit. Satan's authority is real, we just don't know how real it is. Because, and I'm, and I'm going to say this for me, you should be verifying what I teach. Why? Because I'm, I'm, I could be like a blind squirrel. I could find one nut maybe a day and I'll be right. Or I could be on, t- on spot all the time. But 
verify it. Okay, don't don't say thus says Eric, because then you'll have a bigger issue than you think you have now. Uh, uh, I, I was going to bring out my San Francisco Giant. I mean, San, I said Giants, San Francisco 49er jacket because it's in my office, and I said I'm going to show you all because I'm for the today's the, my day, 49ers. Okay, but if, what if they lose? Yeah, I just cursed them by bringing the jacket out, kind of, I, you know. But but the point, don't say that. All the Packer fans are going. Um, <laughs> Ephesians chapter two verse two says, "In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience." Now, from Ephesians chapter two verse two, <laughs> it shows there are only two types of people in the world. Two types, believers and unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, you're in verse 2. That means in which you as an unbeliever today are walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You are in disobedience. You are an unbeliever. You are following after your father, Satan. So the first thing most of us think about is somebody that's satanic has what? Like horns and looked evil, uh, dark kind of spirit and all that. No, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, obviously, those are off the off the chart with different things. But when we look at what how the world is, the ruler of this world is Satan, and the Lord has delegated to him authority of the air. In other words, he's got a limited scope of responsibility, a limited range that he can influence people. Uh, he is. Uh, kind of a prime minister to the earth. I know, I know that sounds kind of weird, but I, that's the only way I can kind of grasp that. God has allowed him certain powers. And uh, yet, he is not the sovereign of the universe. We don't answer to Satan for anything. We're not... It, notice what it says again uh, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. You were dead in your trespassing sins, and you formerly were that. We're not that anymore. We're in a, we're, we have we answer to a higher authority, okay? Like a what a hot dog commercial. Go to chapter six, chapter six, verse twelve, and this gives us a whole slew of understanding of Satan's realm of authority, but it is limited. Now, first of all, I'm one of the people who believe Satan can, to a believer, um, maybe even oppress you, but I and and influence you. But I think it is also very limited. Because remember when Peter was uh, getting ready to kind of thwart Jesus from going to the cross? He says, don't go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a good place. They want to what? Kill you in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going, this is my time. This is why I'm here kind of thing. And Peter says, don't do it. And, and Jesus says to him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. In other words, if you go off of what my word is, if you go away from my word and allow Satan to influence your thinking that I shouldn't go to the cross, you're now in Satan's control. So be careful. All it is, is it's real simple. You want to not be under Satanic control. Be in the word of God. And say, here's what the word of God says. And Satan can't have any influence over you in that realm, and I totally believe that. But, however, let's talk about his realm in verse 12. For our struggle, and this is talking about believer, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, we have a spiritual struggle. Okay? And one of the things he, one of the things he says against rulers, uh, rulers are, are those, uh, satanic influences in the, in the world, against powers, and again, uh, Satan, Satan has certain power, um, and again, that's uh, limited by God. Against the world forces of this darkness. So when we talk about spiritual darkness, uh, that's what that's in this world today. And I think a lot of believers have come under uh, hideous darkness because they're allowing things that are not scriptural or their understanding of scripture to mandate what they do. Um, I believe there are believers that really are into uh, doing things by works to please God, but I think they're believers, and I think that's spiritual darkness. Uh, if they, uh, and, and I gotta be careful because we cross a line when we go into, uh, some cults. For instance, Seventh-day Adventists I think is cultic. But I think there's believers there that are influenced by that nonsense and they want to observe the Lord's Sabbath. You know? Uh, which is kind of interesting because I have all sorts of issues with that because 
legally, everybody says the Sabbath is what? Saturday, right? It's always Saturday. Um, I can't find the word Saturday in the Bible. Has anybody ever seen the word Saturday in the Bible? So the word is what? The Sabbath comes on what? The seventh day. So if you go to, the only way to figure that out is through watching the moon, right? And the seventh day, and if you ever do that, you'll find out it's not always a Saturday. So think on that, you know. And when people say Christ was crucified on Sunday, probably was. uh, But is it really that important that we worship a day? Colossians says we don't worship days, right? If we're, if we're solid, understanding believers, we don't worship. Oh, I only worship Jesus on Sunday. The rest of the week, what are you worshiping? So, anyway, I don't know what maybe chased that. But uh, spiritual, it goes on. The spiritual forces, the word forces in there. Um, the word here is pneumaticos. Uh, pneumaticos. Basically, it's things characterized by spirit, and spirit is usually defined by the context. So it could be the human spirit, it could be the Holy Spirit, it could be it could be uh, demon spirits, and I think this is demonic spirit. So you could say this de- demonic spiritual uh, uh, things characterized by demons of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there's 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 out here in the heavenlies their location. Where's where are their locations? Uh, I would say from the, what we would call the atmosphere here. That's where God's allowing their rule and reign. Um, if they're ruling on Mars, I don't really care. You know, it's God's still limiting their rule because on Mars, I don't think there's anybody to influence. I, you know, unless that little guy from, what is it, the Looney Tunes? The Martian guy? Yeah, he was pretty funny. So, uh, But that was a Looney Tune. So the principle out of this, let me just kind of give you a principle because I want you to see this. Satan has real authority. But it is limited to the sphere of darkness. So when this sphere of darkness is removed, his power will be removed. And we know that will happen when Christ rules and reigns at the end of the millennium. And that millennial kingdom goes into the eternal kingdom of God. And that that rule is gone. After a thousand years, Satan will be released. He'll fight with the Lord. And the Lord will again uh, throw him into the place that was prepared for him. Uh, Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now what I'm trying to say is Satan has a rule, but it's limited. God's rule is unlimited. God's rule is absolute. Satan's is limited. And ours is even less but could be more if we submit to God's will, because then we do rule over Satan, because he won't have any influence on us. Kind of get what I'm saying? Okay? Uh, I was at a meeting, a board meeting for a church once, and somebody was talking about things that were going on in church, and it's very satanic. I go, well, I can't really say it's satanic. Could it be? I'm the kind of person, I don't want to give him any credit unless i got absolute understanding of what's going on. So let's say, hey... People are being human, you know, and stop being so human. And some human people would what? Submit to Satan's rule, and some people will what? Submit to their own rule, okay? And then you have issues. The problem is, can we get all people in a church to submit to the rule of God and his will? And that's, that's in and of itself, a difficulty, right? So uh, when we go to... 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, uh, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, this is a difficult set of verses, because if you, at first glance you say, if, if there's an unbeliever, he's going to stay an unbeliever forever, because Satan has blinded his eyes. And you could say that, right? There's a problem with that, though. It says might. In other words, it's a, it's a subjunctive mood. He might not see the light. And I believe everyone has seen some light, and they have responded to it or not responded to it, because the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And some people may get a, a shorter chance than others. Um, but God allows everybody a choice to respond to the gospel... You got what I'm saying? Because faith comes by what? 
hearing and hearing by the word of God. The problem is some people are not getting the word of God, and Satan can influence the mind, but not does not possess his person's will in this case unless a person willingly submits to Satan's rule and how they do that is stay as an unbeliever willfully rejecting the gospel. Um, for instance, go to John 3.36. I don't see, think you'll see this at any football game tonight, but let's just go to it just in case. John 3.36. So at least on a, f- a football playoff Sunday, I could say, I put the sign up. John 3.36. So when we're talking about the rule of Satan, I think this verse kind of falls into it. Because it says, the fa- um, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. A believer has eternal life. You cannot break that chain. So when somebody says, well, I don't know if I have eternal life, I don't know if I'm saved, it's a really good verse to go to, because if you're a believer, it doesn't say a believer and you've done these works. It says you believed, and the rest of the context in John will tell you you believe in Jesus and that Jesus would be lifted up as a snake, a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. And you would look to him for salvation. So let's say you're a believer, you have eternal life. But he who does not obey, so the opposite of belief in this case is 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 is, is um, not to obey. Uh, again, the marginal notes in the New American Standard says um, or does not believe. Um, the problem with that is it's two different words. And the question, the, what rises out of this, are you persuaded that Jesus Christ is a Savior? If you are, you're a believer. If you un, remain unpersuaded, that's kind of what the word means. Uh, you, you, it, what does it say? You haven't been believed in the Son. You haven't been persuaded what the Son has done. You shall not see life. What kind of life? Because the context defines it, eternal life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So people that are unbelievers are under the wrath of God. That's not a good place to be. Under the wrath of God, Satan rules. Get what I'm saying? So the only ruler that they had, an unbeliever has to um, hear from is satanic rule. The only way to re- get removed from that is become a believer. Because then you're no longer under the wrath of God. Uh, another verse that will help us, Romans chapter 1. Go to Romans chapter 1. Which is fascinating verse because verse 18, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. So God has revealed his wrath upon men because of why? Why does he reveal? Why does he have to have wrath against people? Because they what? They've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. That means everyone has had some light, some truth. They haven't responded to it. And therefore, they fall under that veiled understanding in 2 Corinthians. They come under the uh, place of disobedience in John chapter 3. And obviously, if they're in Satan's world, they're under his influence. Now, it sounds terrible because we're going to, I don't want you all walking out and saying, look at all the satanic people. But I want you to get the idea of what's happening. Because I expect nothing less in this world other than Satan's rule. Limited, however... By God, uh, so I want us. I want us to understand that. Um, let's let's talk about again real quick as we wrap up this little section before we go into the next one. Let's talk about the rule of man because we have the rule of God, the rule of Satan, and rule of man. And God has given us dominion over the whole earth. Originally, God had give, given man dominion over the whole earth, uh, and reiterated that in Genesis nine. So go to Genesis nine. And then we'll go from Genesis 9 to Psalm 8. Genesis 9. Now, if you remember correctly, Genesis 9 is um, getting off the ark, where God had judged the whole world. And now they're getting off the ark, and God has to reiterate some things to Noah, Noah's family, the three sons that are there. And so that we know we're under... You know, everyone says can say in this room we're all related to Adam, but we're also related to someone that came off a boat. doesn't matter what. Uh, Verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have you heard that before? 
Wasn't that the same thing given to Adam and Eve? And, and the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps in the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. So again, he's given the dominion mandate, I guess is the best way to say it, to rule over the earth. Uh, and sometimes we have some of these people that are tree huggers, and, and I'm not knocking them. What I'm just saying is we're given dominion to rule over this earth. As believers, we should have ruled over it correctly. Uh, not to be the perfect environmentalist, but know things about the environment and to take care of those things. But the main reason we're given dominion over these things is for what? To preserve them or to eat them? And I really think what we have to understand, God has provided all for us to eat, to survive. Uh, and if, if you ever want to examine it, there are certain animals you just don't eat. They're not eating because why? They're part, maybe part of the food chain, but you're not going to eat them. And there are certain plants you shouldn't eat because what will they do? They could kill you, right? Because they're poisonous, but they're part of the curse and the cycle that God has in life. But he does say that we have been given rule. Look at verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it to all, all to you and as I gave you the green plants. Only you shall eat, not eat, uh, eat flesh with its life that is its blood. In other words... Again, what Leviticus 17.11 says, the life is in the blood. You want to, you want to bleed things out. Is it, is it health concern? Probably at that time. Um, I'm just not, you know, I've seen some of those rugged shows where the guy takes out the deer's heart. and, you know, that, No, you, let's move on kind of thing. Um, but what it's doing is saying it's still limited, even though it's his all. Remember, God has given us everything on the earth to eat, but there are certain things we just don't eat. They're not edible. Uh, so when we say all... The word doesn't always mean everything that ever existed on earth. Uh, and there are certain things you may try once in your lifetime. Please don't do it again. I've eaten tarpon once. Anybody ever heard of tarpon? The, maybe the worst fish I've ever tasted. And don't eat barracuda after a certain size because you'll die. So you've got to be careful with certain things. Uh, that was my limited experience in Florida. And surely I will require your life, blood, from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So again, what he's setting up, God setting up his dimensions about how to uh, not, how to maintain life. And one of the things is taking life as, human life is not a good thing. And we'll talk about that on, on a, about two weeks from now on our second class. Uh, let's go to Psalm 8. Psalm chapter 8. And then we'll look at how God has given man structure in his authority on earth. Psalm chapter 8. Verse 3. Psalm 8, 3. says, When I consider the heavens, thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost make... Take thought of him, and the son of man, that thou dost care for him. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over thy works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And then he, um, the bookends of this verse is, O Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Now, here's what he set up. He set up a paradigm for man to rule on the earth and the purpose of man. Now, let's talk about man's rule. Where does man rule? Well, obviously, there's social rule, uh, different paradigms in different businesses, but I think that has to do mostly with government because God sets up government, puts men in charge of those governments or, or people in this case, um, and if you look around, not every country has the same kind of leadership, same kind of government. But God is in charge of governments, uh, whether good or bad. God is sovereign over that, but God has given man that uh, dominion, that area of dominion. Secondly, man has given uh, family to to work out that dominion over. For instance, men are husbands, and there's a certain rule they have. Wiser submit um, not be a doormat, but there's a, there's a relationship there that's, that's God has established. 
But basically, man has the the rule of the family and the rule as a parent. Uh, but kids are also part of that because kids are to obey who? Just dad? You know, like, wait till your father gets home? I don't see that in Ephesians chapter 6. Anybody ever seen that? It says, children obey your what? Parents. Well, that's kind of interesting. So, mom, if you're saying, wait till your dad gets home, take care of it before he gets home. Then let him take care of it. That way, the kids get what? Double indemnity. I love that. Um, because why? They're supposed to obey their parents. So God has set up that. In Hebrews chapter 13, it talks about church leadership. God has set up the body of Christ, and there's certain leadership um, in, in each church. And I love it when somebody once came here to church and said, do you have eldership rule? I said, no, that's not the way we handle government in this church. It's not, a, not set in granite that elders have to, and there's different understandings of that. I said, no, we don't. We have deacons that have a board, da-da-da. She said, well, I won't be back. I said, is that the thing that's keeping you from place to learning God's word because you don't agree with the way our, our governmental issue is in our church? You know, which, which is, you know, whatever. Um, but the point is, there is a leadership standard in, in the word of God about the church. And Hebrews 13, 7 tells you, pray for those who have leadership over you. So it doesn't say pray for just the pastor. It doesn't pray just for the deacon or the elder or whatever. Um, so everyone... When we talk about all these, every one of these leadership roles or, or structural authority roles um, in, human, uh, in human existence have a parameter, uh, a paradigm. Uh, I'm not, as a leader in my family and in the church, I'm not going to go out to the government and tell them how to run things. I may make my choice, either verbally to some government official I may meet and say, here's where I stand on certain issues, or at the voter's booth, you know, and all of you vote this year. Get ready. Be prepared. It's one day, an hour tops out of your time. Go vote. Because it's important because we're saying this is what we want to see as a structure in this nation. Uh, but wherever, wherever a designated authority steps outside its bounds, it's a no-no for that authority. In other words, how much government authority should a government have? And I believe when it steps outside that authority, it's a no-no. And I've seen a lot of times government has stepped out of its bounds. And it's a no-no. I've seen places where churches will step out of its bounds and say things to a family or whatever and say it's not their, not their right to do those things. Uh, you can, and at the same time, let's, let's answer a different thing. Can you defy authority? Can you rebel against authority? Well, if you don't believe that, see, see the home. Children always what? Rebel, Right? No, my child's perfect. I don't think so. Children are built like that because there's a struggle for what? Their own authority, their own independence, and what you're doing is structurally telling them who's in charge. You are not, little Timmy, unless you want to drive yourself to school right now at four years old and you want to pay the bills and keep a roof over your head. You can do all those things. Go for it. But if you can't do those things, you're a kid. Um, For instance, I've seen kids decide what they want to eat for every meal. That's a no-no for authority, right? Who's in charge? Well, mom may not be. She may just say, go get whatever you want to eat. I don't want to deal with you. But that's a no-no because they've given their authority to somebody else. Uh, and and when we look at this... Now, I, w- I want us to understand something because we, we always want to label things rebellion. or, or and, and my teen is naturally rebellious. No, what it is is they're going outside their authority, realm of authority, and they've got to be put in place to understand what their authority realm is. Uh, somebody that gives me a given that all teens will rebel, let them do what they want to do. No. That is not anywhere in the Bible, because in the Bible, you ready for this? If a teen rebels in the Old Testament, what happens? Not the first. At first, they're brought before the authority. The authority decides that they're going to stone them. So the religious authority got this say, let's stone this kid. So the problem was done away with, right? How many rebellious kids would last? I don't know if anybody was ever, you know, biblically, I can't find any kid that was ever stoned for being rebellious. But maybe he didn't have to because the rule was there. And all dad would look at him and say, you want to die? You want to die? I mean, this is really, let's face the issue. You keep this up, you die. I don't have to deal with it because God said do it. Um, but again, um, when we have, an, we have an obligation to respond to as human authorities 
And if they step outside their arena of responsibility, we can call them down. And when they, st- and when they don't do what they're supposed to do, we can call them down. Go real quick. We're going to finish Acts chapter 4. We'll finish for this morning. Acts chapter 4. Go to verse 13. Let's get an example of this so we can see what happens. Because this may, the reason I'm reading this is because this may happen to us today. There, our society is so changing, we may come up against a situation like this, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in the uh, city or state that you may live in at some point. You may come up against this. Against this. So in verse 13, he, Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now as they observed the conf- with the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go outside, uh, out, out of the council, excuse me, they began to co- confer. Uh, with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that this noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in, in, to any man in this name. So they're, they're going to be told, Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Right? Don't talk about him. Because in verse 12 it says, There is no other name under heaven that man that has been given to men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus, right? Verse 18 says, But when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. How would you reply? How would you reply if somebody said, Don't do this, you may die. And they said this, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. Now here's the thing. Crowd approval was okay for right now. They got it, but there's going to come a day, I read it in the book of Revelation, that everybody will turn against you if you don't get the mark of the beast. What, what are people going to do when they say, you've got to get the mark or die? What happened in, in Daniel's time when they were t- told to do certain things and they didn't? See, you can defy authority when it defies the word of God, and God will deal with the how the cookies crumble. And the worst thing that will ever happen is you die and get a straight pass to go to heaven. It may not be a good death, but it will be quick. Right? Because God will take you uh, to heaven. But here's what I'm trying to get at. When authority tells you to defy the word of God specifically, if a parent ever told a child to go steal, go murder somebody, do something, no, they're stepping outside the realm of their authority. They don't have to be obeyed or listened to. So, again, uh, how often does Satan step outside of his realm of authority and people listen? Because my Bible says, has he not said Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And as we go uh, out and get some refreshments and get some coffee, Father, we want to make sure when we do these classes that we're just not talking, uh, we're not just giving opinions, we're looking at the Word and seeing what the Word has to say. We want to be people of your Word so we know how to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.